You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Yaxis, Chicago, Illinois. The word Chicago is thought to derive from a Native American term, Chickawaga, which means smelly onion. The land Chicago occupies is a natural swamp. It floods extensively in the spring, is a hazy, mosquito-filled sauna in the summer, and the winters, which are legendarily brutal, last nine months. People have lived in America since before the pyramids were built, yet in all that time, none of them settled in Chicago. Then white people showed up, and within two generations, we built what would become the fifth biggest city in the world. In this very area, everyone else had studiously avoided. I think it's a pretty good insight into our priorities. I imagine that first Swede or French Lost, sunburnt, soaked in mud, emerging from a thicket of reeds, and asking, What is this place called? Chicago, comes the answer, means smelly onion. It's perfect. All we have to do is dredge 5,000 cubic miles of swamp mud, reverse a river, raise the tableland about 10 feet somehow, and this will be the port city for an entire region. Your children will die of illness. Yes, but think of the shareholders. People I'd like to have a drink with. George Cap Streeter. It's often said of great men, he built this town. But that has never been truer than of George Cap Streeter, a two-faced hustler who literally built part of this town. His conniving brought in the very soil where Streeterville, an affluent neighborhood on the near north side of Chicago, now stands. In July of 1886, Streeter purchased an enormous steamboat and was intending to become a gun smuggler down in Honduras, but was so incompetent a captain that during a storm, he grounded his newly purchased vessel on a sandbar just outside of Chicago. Most captains would ask for help. Streeter went the opposite way. He decided living on this sandbar would be just as good as Honduras and declared the sandbar the United States District of Lake Michigan. His boat settled into a permanent footing on the sandbar and Streeter started a speakeasy and brothel out of it, claiming that neither the laws of Chicago nor Illinois applied to him 
as he was in the aforementioned newly created district. Streeter then sold dumping rights to Chicago Waste Management Companies, who surely understood this was all illegal, but because they loved the idea of dumping all their garbage into the lake, they decided to ask no follow-up questions. Which meant Streeter's district was quickly filled with enough garbage to make footing solid enough to build houses, allowing Streeter to sell land rights. Americans like to think that all successful people willed themselves into victory and put in other circumstances or different errors, these people could have achieved the same results. I disagree. I think a lot of it is having the right plan at the right time. And George Cap Streeter is the perfect example of that. Because the entire success of his plan hinges on how fucking crazy Chicago was in the late 19th century. His success was only possible back then. His swindle was allowed because, frankly, the city was so insane it needed him as a pressure release. Take the early success of Streeter's brothel. It shows that some men in Chicago were so cheap and hard up for a good time, they were willing to wade through a shallow lake of shit and, upon reaching their destination, excited to sleep with the kind of woman who's willing to sleep with the man who swam through a shallow lake of shit. Does that sound like somebody you want in the city proper? If you just opened up a new bed and breakfast with a tavern on the bottom floor, do you want the guy who will swim through shit for a cheaper beer at your home or business? No. You think the gods of commerce that Streeter is out there, beached in Lake Michigan, and willing to take these crazies. Similarly, Chicago did not want to solve its garbage problem by planning and designing city dumps. No, it wanted to just dump it all in the lake. But it knew Canada, Wisconsin, Michigan, and maybe even Illinois itself, those goddamn backstabbers, would object so it probably liked having Streeter to blame. Streeter's biggest mistake was probably in accepting so much trash, so much money, that eventually grass grew over everything, and the area looked respectable, meaning the city of Chicago was now ready to take it over. Chicago sent in a platoon of cops, and there was a battle at Streeter's steamboat, where Streeter's forces beat back the police by dousing them with boiling water and shooting birdshot at them. After the battle, Streeter was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon, and at the trial, he told the jury the truth. That he owns a brothel on a shifting pile of garbage that he considers to be outside the realm of Chicago. And therefore, when Chicago police showed up, he felt he had the right to shoot them and drop boiling water on them. And because the Constitution gives you the right to a jury of your peers, and because this was Chicago in the 19th century... Streeter's peers immediately decided, agreed, not guilty on all counts. What I find most hilarious about this story, that the city itself resisted official memorizations of George Streeter because he was a lying, cheating real estate swindler. Yet, in 2010, a private group constructed a statue to finally cement his legacy. The group that funded it? Yep. They are a real estate investment company. 
Chicago is still a city of hilarious, reckless hustlers. One of the first bars I entered in Chicago had a bartender banning a regular for a good solid week's Johnny. After the guy went around collecting money for his dad's funeral, only for his dad to walk in and order a beer during the collection. I was a bit of a grifter myself when I moved here. We would go to all-you-can-drink charity events. $30 to enter, unlimited beer. All profits go to charity. But we drank so much at them, it felt like we were setting the cure for cancer back five years. I realized that when a bar offers an all-you-can-drink deal, they're playing the numbers. Most people probably won't view it as a challenge to see how much they can drink. They just want to have a fun night out. Maybe a drink, two or three cocktails. Not I. Have you ever attended a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese? They have this big wind tunnel that the birthday kid enters. And the kid has 30 seconds to spin around in this windy vortex and grab as many tickets as they can hold. That is how I order drinks at an open bar. Like a kid in the ticket blaster. On one particularly rainy night in Chicago, my roommates and I attended such an event. A $30 all-you-can-drink fundraiser. And due to the inclement weather, many guests canceled, leaving my roommates and I to have the bar nearly to ourselves on an open tap. A Chuck E. Cheese party where each invitee is thrown into the ticket blaster. We drank and drank and drank until the event ended. And we had to decide, stay here and pay for each new drink, or try a new place. Let's try a new place, I suggested. Have you looked outside? My roommates questioned. It was a driving, monsoon-like rain, and the few people we saw on the streets were sprinting to shelter. It's perfect, I answered. Let's go. Everyone has a favorite kind of drinking. Maybe day drinking or drinking at a ball game. My favorite kind of drinking is disaster drinking. I like to drink in the kind of situations where you see a lot of local news vans parked on the streets. Power outages, devastating blizzards, floods, and so on. On New Year's Eve, they like to warn you, watch out, it's amateur night at the bars. Well, when you go out during a flood... It's professional night. No one approaches the bartender and orders like, oh, let's see, what's good here? What do I want? When you're at a bar three hours after the National Guard was activated. We were walking down Diversity Avenue in Chicago into a mighty rain. The news later called what we were walking into a derecho, which is essentially a tornado that also dumps waves of rain. A a once-in-a-decade, overachieving weather event that turned to its rain cloud buddies and proposed, you know, I'm already going to Chicago to destroy some old houses and whatnot. Why don't I take all your rain over there for you, too? Save you a trip. We'll combine your rain with my tornado. I learned the term derecho the next morning watching the news when the weather forecaster confidently used the term like it was as common as thunder good morning oh and 
Wow, do we hear a news channel 4? Hope your basement is okay after that derecho we had last night. This is a consistent trick the news media plays upon us. They make you believe that a weird, scary story is not to be worried about because they have a word for it. A precise, scientific term that explains this exact situation. And they pretend we all know this word. And because we know it, and they know it, the event is normal. When a tornado arrives that is so angry that after it blows off all the roofs, it sticks around to piss inside each house, you start to question why nothing like this has ever happened before in your family's 80 years in the area. Maybe it's related to global warming, you wonder. And maybe it's something you need to be concerned about. Maybe it'll become more common. But then the news says... Nope, it's a derecho. Standard derecho. See, it's so normal, we have a word for it. No need to worry. They did the same thing when Vice President Dick Cheney shot a guy in the face with a shotgun. In fact, it was about the same time as this derecho. And I remember the news reports all explaining the shooting with, the vice president was surprised by a covey of birds, causing him to shoot one of the members of his hunting party. And I further remember my friends thinking I had lost my sanity. This is a conspiracy, I'd yell. This incident is far worse than they're admitting. Maybe Cheney was drunk. No, Sean. You're reading too much into it. Everything is a conspiracy with you. It was just... Like they said, it was a covey of birds, they'd assure me. Exactly. That's my point. That's the conspiracy. When did we start to act like we know what the word covey means? None of us have ever used that word before last week. Ever. After leaving the first bar, we walked for a block. And the conditions were not good. This is a terrible idea, one of my roommates screamed into the wind. Let's go into that motel. It has a bar. We were all new to the city, and given how unfamiliar we were with Chicago, my roommates were ready to enter the first place with shelter. No, I dissented. Trust me, there's a basement bar not three blocks away, and it's open late. They relented. And we reached the bar, sopping wet. The bar was called Yaxis. And as we passed through the doorway, it was as though we had entered, not a bar, but the lower deck of a sinking pirate ship. A ship whose crew was so well stocked with rum and so tired of sailing, they wanted to go down with her. Water was emerging, splashing, leaking into the bar in every direction. Men were swimming in the building, in about shin-deep water, to order new pitchers of beer. One guy was crab-walking through the water on all fours, singing, under the sea, under the sea. But most amazing was the owner of the bar, the captain of this sinking ship, who had made no SOS calls. Not only was Yaxis staying open in over a foot of water, not only were they continuing to sell beer by the pitcher in over a foot of water, but they had also not disabled a single electrical device. 
their popcorn machine was on. People were backstroking to the jukebox to play songs. We took all this in, absorbed all the chaos, and as we entered, my roommate straightened his arm across my chest to stop me from walking into this impromptu pool and said, I've been to a lot of bars, and this, this is a bar. And he released me into the flood, like I was being baptized into Chicago street water. We drank and drank, and the water rose and rose, and was now hitting our knees. My roommate finally noticed all the electrical gadgets still operating in a flooded room. Whoa! Shouldn't they unplug all this? Couldn't we be, uh, electrocuted? He asked loudly. No need to unplug, my friend, a guy one table over answered. Name's Donut, former master electrician. He introduced his soaking wet self. There's no reason to unplug. Oh, nice, my roommate responded. So this isn't an electrical hazard? No, it's a huge hazard, Donut replied, while little pink houses played on the jukebox. It's just that, he continued. It's just that once the water reaches the outlet, unplugging the appliance is actually more dangerous. It's the water at the outlet that is bad. So, and he pointed to the air, we might as well listen to some cougar while we die. After Donut had assured us we need not worry about the glowing lights, we drank even more and the water seemed to rise with each pitcher. I started dancing with this gorgeous woman. We had chemistry on the verses. Then, as the chorus hit, I dipped her, but forgot we were standing in water and her head submerged for a second. I immediately pulled her up. We're all going to die in here, she yelled. I know. It's the perfect way to go out, I shouted back. I married that woman. That was 17 years ago. We have three kids now, and whenever I do something that nearly kills me at home, I hear Jess mutter to herself, but loud enough that I'm pretty sure the kids also hear it. This is what I get for marrying someone I met at a bar. One of the better ways to summarize my wife's confidence in me is that throughout the first seven years of our marriage, she has increased the life insurance policy on me each year, meaning each year... She saw some event, me trying to change a light bulb on an office chair with wheels, or me reaching into a fire to get a hot dog that dropped. And those decisions made her think, I need to prepare for a life without Sean. I'm a stand-up comedian who mostly performs for drink tickets at bars, but my wife has me insured like I run Wells Fargo. I always tell her she better hope I don't die because there is no way the police won't think she killed me, given the ludicrous insurance policies she's opened on me. I'll just explain the truth, she replies, that you were a jackass, and that's why I insured you like that. <laughs> yeah, babe. Well, I rejoin, the problem with jackasses is we die the same way murdered husbands do. You know, falling from penthouses, poisoning, Antique sword accidents. When you make major changes to your life insurance policy, the insurance company sends a nurse to give you a physical. 
and I was amazed at how cursory this examination was. The representative asked if I smoked. If I did drugs, then weighed me, measured my blood pressure, and left. That was it. I was worried there'd be more probing questions that would highlight my risk-prone behaviors, such as, Mr. Flannery, what's the weirdest thing you ever drank? And I would have to answer that when my buddies and I were on Putten bay Island in Lake Erie, we opened the closet at the house we were renting, and there was a two-liter plastic bottle of dark beer with a handwritten label that said, Beer? That is to say, there was a question mark at the end of the word beer. Even the container wasn't sure what was in it. We opened it and tested it and confirmed it was beer and drank the whole thing, even though the liquid was probably 80 degrees warm. And if this hypothetical medical examiner were to ask, and Mr. Flannery, how old were you when you did this? I would have to be honest and say, that was last summer. At which point, the examiner would turn to my wife and say, no, we cannot insure this man. I have always been surprised that jackass is not a formal risk level in insurance products. Listed somewhere above healthy adults, but below people with high blood pressure. Insurance companies could even tailor how the policy covers them, jackasses. Flu shots are not covered, but all hospitals become in-network during NFL home games. And the death benefits. Cancer, heart attack, zero payout. But electrocuted in a basement bar during a derecho? Your wife will never have to work again. Drinking buddy shoots you after a covey of birds surprises him? No problem. You sustained an injury while repelling local police from your self-declared trash town? No copay, no deductible. I'm proposing the first ever insurance plan that caters exclusively to jackasses. One underwritten by the official insurance company of the United States District of Lake Michigan. Our motto is, we don't offer absolution. But we do cover electrocution.